Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our series through the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus building up to Resurrection Sunday. This morning we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God, words written for you and written for me. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, John the Baptist, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law, they prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now, a few weeks ago in my Sunday school class on the book of Hebrews, which I have thoroughly enjoyed teaching, kind of a shameless plug that that's a, Dave teaches a great Sunday school class, and I do as well. And um, <laughs> you're more than welcome to be there. Um, and as we've studied the book of Hebrews, we have noticed that the context of the book, the reason for which the book was written, was to encourage Jewish Christians in Rome, in Rome and house churches in and around Rome, to persevere. Because Jewish Christians were leaving the church in Rome and the house churches around Rome because of the serious hot fires of persecution that both preceded Nero's persecution in 64 and 65 AD and the persecution that immediately followed. There were great fires that swept through the city of Rome and Nero needed a scapegoat. He didn't want 
to be the fall guy himself, and so he blamed the Christians in Rome, and there was a great persecution. And people were being um, killed, and their property was being confiscated if they associated with the name of Jesus, and so people were leaving the church in big numbers. Ironically, in our Sunday school class, we noticed that the same thing is happening today, but not because of persecution. The same trend is happening today. People are leaving the church in the United States in historic numbers. It's truly incredible. In a recent Barna study, this was 2019, over 60% of 18 to 29 year olds in the USA who grew up in the church indicated that they have left the church as an adult after having been active as a child or a teen. 40, I'm sorry, 60% of 18 to 29 year olds have left the church. That's, that's incredible. A recent Pew Foundation survey found that roughly 40% of, a mil, of millennials, that's um, 25 to 40-year-olds, 40% of millennials say they now seldom or never go to any kind of religious service. That is a massive increase over previous decades. So let's just try to take this in and consider this. 60% of 18 to 29-year-olds have left the church, not to return. 40% Of millennials, 25 to 40-year-olds say they seldom or never go to any kind of religious service. Yet another study that was chronicling or following the nuns. Now, we've talked about nuns before, N-O-N-E. So in these religious surveys, these polls, there are these boxes about what is your affiliation? Are you Roman Catholic? Are you Protestant? Are you Presbyterian or Baptist? There's a box that says none, meaning you don't associate yourself with any religious affiliation. Most of that group are agnostic or or atheists, okay? That is the single largest religious group in America. Now, it's the fastest growing group. I'm sorry, it's not the largest group, it's the fastest growing group. It grew, so there were 17% of the U.S. population were nuns in 2009. 17% of the U.S. population identified as a nun in 2009. It had almost doubled by 2019. Almost 30% of all people in the United States identify as a nun. People are leaving the church in droves. Not long ago, I came across a very poignant, a very fascinating 2017 award-winning documentary called Leaving God by a man named John Follis. Um, and it was, it was a documentary about why he left God. Um, very well done, like I said, award-winning. And it's fascinating to kind of walk beside him as he made the decision to ultimately leave God altogether. He grew up in the church, he says, and it's, a, it would, it's an interesting video. I would commend you all to, to watch it and consider it. So he chronicles his life. He grew up in the church. Um, he went to college, and then he got very involved in the young adults' ministry in his church. It was uh, 
a Protestant church in New York City, a well-known church. Um, it was from the Reformed tradition back in the day. He got very involved in the young adults class, ultimately met his wife there, got married, enjoyed a few months of a good marriage, and then things got difficult, very difficult. His wife indicated that maybe they had rushed into it, maybe they should consider divorce, and so he goes and he meets with the pastor. And in his conversation with the pastor, the pastor told him that that was not something that God would approve of, that they should not get a divorce, and encouraged him to stay in the marriage. Six months later, the pastor gets a divorce. The pastor doesn't only get one divorce, the pastor gets two divorces. And so that caused him to pause and consider um, kind of what's going on here. Um, following that, his wife divorced him. Incredibly heartbreaking and traumatic. Shortly after that, he watched 9-11 happen in real time. Saw it happen. Saw the buildings collapse. Very, very faith-shaking and faith-challenging. Not long after that, he was tuning in to um, uh, like a, a, a historical video around Christmas time, and it was trying to explain Christmas from a secular perspective, explaining how like the Christmas narrative is at odds with what we know about the Christ of history. And that was very challenging to his faith. So he had, his pastor had gotten a divorce, um, his wife had left him, 9-11 was happening, and then he watches this documentary that basically was saying that Luke's um, testimony of the birth of Jesus was not true. And so um, he ends up going to a Bible study at the church called Bible and Bagels, where you could go and you could engage in a Bible study and you could ask your questions. And so he goes, and that night they happen to be looking at Luke chapter 2, on the birth of Jesus. The pastor read the passage. They had a good Bible study. At the end, the pastor entertained questions. Does anybody have any questions? And in the video, he said earnestly, honestly, he had just seen this, this documentary, and he looked at the pastor, and he said, is it true? Is the Christmas story actually true? He wasn't asking it in a challenging way. He was asking it in a very earnest way. And he said the pastor's response was shocking. He said the pastor looked like a deer in the headlights. He said it was, it was so surprising that like, he had to like, like save and rescue the pastor because the pastor didn't know what to say. And the pastor ultimately said, well, it just depends on what you mean or what truth means to you. And he was so disturbed that um, he doesn't remember anything else that happened to the study. A few weeks later, he received a letter from the church, basically disinviting him from that Bible study, saying that he had aged out of it, and he was no longer welcome, and they showed the, the letter in the video. And then shortly after that, he decided that he would leave God altogether, that he didn't believe it was true. And it was so sad and so poignantly documented and so heartbreaking to me that nowhere along the way did anyone come to encourage him and help him understand 
that the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't true because we want it to be true. It isn't true because it makes us feel good. It's true because it's actually true. And there was nowhere, no one in his faith journey that came alongside and encouraged him in that way. And it's heartbreaking to me. With that in mind, I want us to consider the passage before us. Because according to Jesus, the single greatest man other than himself, Jesus said, the greatest man born among women, John the Baptist, doubted his faith, struggled, had questions, okay? John the Baptist was an incredibly great man, the last and greatest of all the prophets, but he was a human just like you and me. He was a human just like John Follis from that documentary. And certain circumstances came into his life that caused him to question. And I think there's a lot we can learn from this. A lot we can learn from this. So we're going to look at this passage. The context of our passage today is that Jesus has just commissioned the 12 to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to drive out demons, to preach the good news. He's sending out the 12 as an extension of himself. And then after he sends out the 12, he continues to engage in the same kind of ministry. Okay? In the meantime, as his disciples to go, out, go out to preach in his name, he is approached by the disciples of John the Baptist, and they have a question for him. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, this is John the Baptist, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, the reason for this gets explained in three chapters. Matthew tells us in Matthew 14 that John the Baptist had confronted Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, who was the king of Judea at the time, had taken his brother Philip's wife illegally for himself, among other terrible things, and John the Baptist publicly confronted him. As a consequence for doing so, Herod had John the Baptist put in prison, which would have been a very miserable place. And so it was in that prison cell. And the longer he was there, doubt began to creep in. You know, kind of like the succession of circumstances in John Follis's life that caused him to question being incarcerated at the hands of Herod caused John the Baptist to question. What it does is it really does reinforce and testify to how much our assurance and our belief is often connected to our circumstances. When things are good, when things are going the way we think they ought to go, it's easy to believe in the Lord our God, but when things are hard and we're suffering and trials and death 
and sicknesses, when things happen in our world that we cannot believe, we can't reconcile with the character of a good God, doubts can begin to creep in. And they did for John. And this is really amazing, given what John had already experienced. I mean, he knew who Jesus was from his birth. They were related. I'm going to quote John the Baptist to you from the Gospel of John. This is what John the Baptist says prior to this, prior to being arrested. John gave this testimony. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 32. John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, on Jesus, in his baptism. John the Baptist says, I saw it. I saw the Spirit come down and remain on him. John the Baptist said, I have seen and I testify this is God's chosen one. The greatest man born among women. And then just a few months after this, after being put in prison, he is sending his disciples to the Lord Jesus to ask, are you the one, are you really him, or should we look for another? This really is understandable when you take into account what they were expecting from Messiah. In fact, I just saw an interview yesterday from one of the top New Testament scholars in the world, and in the providence of God, he happened to be talking about why the death of Jesus was so shocking for Jesus' disciples and his followers and John the Baptist and whatnot. You know, why being in prison was so shocking for John the Baptist. Because Jews of the first century were expecting the Messiah to be the Son of Man figure from the book of Daniel. This cosmic figure who was going to come he was going to bring in the final judgment. He was going to make all things right. Okay? That was one view. Another view was similar. The Jews expected him to be an heir and son of David. To be a political deliverer. To sit on David's throne and free his people from the yoke of Rome. The idea that John the Baptist after having baptized Jesus, the idea that John the Baptist, the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets, would be languishing in a prison. After Jesus came to say, what, what was Jesus's like at this point, his, his foundational message? The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. And they, they interpreted that literally, like the kingdom of God with the king is at hand. And so John the Baptist cannot make sense of how the kingdom of God is at hand, the Messiah of the living God is here, the Son of Man who's going to set all things right, and I have been imprisoned, and my death is in view. In other words, being in prison, in Herod's prison, in John's mind was like falsifying this. Falsifying who Jesus was like and this is a helpful comparison and I've said this a lot before your conception of what it's going to be like 
when Jesus comes again in power and glory, your conception of the second coming of Jesus, you know, the Son of Man, come from the Ancient of Days to make all things new and right, that was their view of what the Messiah was going to do. And so with John the Baptist languishing in prison, that did not mesh. And he couldn't wrap his mind around it. What he knew to be true about the Christ could not be harmonized with his circumstances. Let's look at verses 2 through 6. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see and hear. And so he's going to quote from a number of different Old Testament passages and allusions to Messiah and what Messiah would do. Verse 5. The blind receive their sight. No one could do that in the Old Testament. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, blessed is the one who does not turn their back on me when things don't unfold the way that you thought they would. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 35 and other passages that predict what the Messiah would be able to do. In other words, you should look to these things. The figure who could do these things, that would authenticate that this is the one. And so Jesus preached the gospel to those in need. Jesus healed the sick, and he helped the lame to walk, and he gave the blind sight, and he made the deaf hear in their presence. And then he sent them back, and he said, go tell John what you have seen and heard. And they took the message back. And I'm sure Jesus is challenged that blessed are those who are not offended by me. I guarantee you that was ringing in John's ears as he considered that and contemplated that. I want you to notice what Jesus does not do. Where do you see the rebuke of John the Baptist in here? Where does he condemn John the Baptist for having these questions and having these doubts? There is no condemnation here. He doesn't rebuke John. Just the opposite. He loves John. He encourages John. What he wouldn't do for Pharisees at other places, he does for John here. He knows what John needs. And so he does signs for John. He does miracles for John so that John would know who he is. Beloved, if this can happen to John, I guarantee you this can happen to you and me. The circumstances of life can rock our world and shake our faith. And we should be praying for our Ukrainian brothers and sisters. Their life has been turned absolutely upside down. Things that they never imagined, things they never envisioned are happening in their life. Can you begin to imagine having slept outside last night? with an injured child 
No idea where you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. No idea if a tank's going to come rolling down your street. No idea if you're going to die of deprivation. It's one thing for you to suffer, but to watch your child suffer. Our brothers and sisters over there are facing circumstances we can't imagine. And I can only imagine that in their hearts and their minds, they're trying to reconcile that with a gracious and kind and benevolent God. The Lord Jesus loved John the Baptist, and he accommodated John the Baptist in his doubts. Well, how does he accommodate us in ours today? Okay, if John Follis, the man who... He wrote and produced that documentary. If you had a conversation with John Follis, if you had the opportunity to encourage him, what would you say? How would you encourage him to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? How would you encourage him that it's, it's actually true? Again, it's not true just because we want it to be true. We believe it's actually true. How would you encourage him? You know, it's intimidating to people. It's intimidating to me on one level because we can't do what Jesus did, right? We can't just, you know, heal the sick. We can't make the blind to see. We can't raise the dead. We can't prove to them in the same way that Jesus did. And so sometimes that can be intimidating, that can make us feel insecure if we have maybe a, a child, a son, or a daughter, or a grandchild that's struggling with their faith. How do we encourage them that it's actually true when we can't do exactly what Jesus did? I would argue, though, we actually have more at our disposal than Jesus did. I know that sounds crazy. But Jesus said to his disciples, you will do and see greater things than these. Because the Lord Jesus Christ was sending the Holy Spirit who encourages and equips his people to minister in situations just like these. The Holy Spirit is with us and he will work in us and through us to encourage people in the ways that they need to be encouraged. I want to encourage you. Sometimes, well, I'll just say your preacher has doubts from time to time. Absolutely. What encourages me sometimes when I see the darkness and the brokenness of the world and sometimes in the middle of the night, I say to myself, is this really true? Would a loving God allow things like this to actually happen? Maybe you can relate to this. There are two or three things that I keep coming back to that resonate deeply with me. And it goes back to John the Baptist's doubts. And when you understand kind of like the power of the resurrection, um, what it was able to do, it's, it's just amazing. If someone came today 
and claimed to be the Christ. And if that person was beaten and humiliated and hung on a tree, would you think that's the second coming of Jesus? Is there anything that could convince you that that was the Christ? Absolutely not. I can't convey the degree to which Jesus' disciples and the Jews were discouraged and absolutely disheartened by the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. So many people had put their hopes in Jesus of Nazareth. And when the Romans arrested him and tortured him and mocked him and beat him and hung him on that tree, that sent a message loud and clear to every one of those people that this could not possibly be the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. They wouldn't believe in that any more than you and I would believe that someone who came claiming to be Jesus today and yet was humiliated. There is absolutely no way that those disciples would have claimed that Jesus was raised from the dead. There is no way those disciples would have gone out preaching the good news of Jesus' resurrection, not only putting themselves at risk, but all their family members at risk, unless it was true. We've said before, people will give their life for a lie that they think is the truth, like, like suicide bombers today are giving their life for a lie but they think it's the truth. They're sincere. No one gives their life for a lie that they know is a lie. The disciples of Jesus gave their life proclaiming that he had been raised from the dead. There's no way they would have done that if they knew it wasn't true. Even outside the Bible, we know of at least four of the apostles who died terrible deaths preaching the resurrection of Jesus, one being his brother. We've talked about this before. Can you imagine the brother of Jesus who did not believe in Jesus during his ministry being killed as one of his disciples? Think about that. Think about the power of that. Peter and Paul. Paul, three years later, independent of Peter and the rest of the apostles, Paul was shipwrecked and beaten and tortured and whipped and ultimately beheaded by Nero in Rome. He had everything to lose and nothing to gain by doing this. Think about the growth of the early church. There is a fascinating book written by a man named Rodney Stark. I think he's a professor at Baylor now. It's called The Rise of Christianity. It's probably the best historical work on the numbers of the early church. The rapid expansion of the early church. Think about what the early church was up against before I read these numbers. 
Christians and the diaspora, the Christians that were all over the Roman Empire, okay? In the Roman Empire, they were, they were polytheistic, okay? You could worship basically any god you wanted. That was not a problem. That's not why Christians kind of came under their bullseye. Christians came under their bullseye because Christians wouldn't bow the knee to the gods of the Roman state. They wouldn't bow the knee to Caesar. So Christians weren't persecuted for believing in Jesus, per se. Christians were persecuted and they were prosecuted because they wouldn't bow the knee to Caesar as a god. They worship, wouldn't worship the gods of the Roman state. And so they were targeted. They were persecuted. They were prosecuted. I mean, all throughout the book of Acts, up to 64 AD, other major persecutions after that, it was very, very difficult to be a Christian. They were viewed as superstitious zealots. So Paul and the other apostles, they were not out preaching the prosperity gospel of Joel Osteen. Okay, they weren't. They weren't preaching your best life now. What was their message? Think about their message. They were proclaiming a crucified Jew as the savior of the world. That was their message. By the end of the first century, there were roughly 10,000 Christians. There were probably double that at least who had professed Christ since 30 AD to the end of the century. By 150 AD, there were 50,000 Christians. By 200 AD, 250,000 Christians all over the Roman Empire. By 250 AD, 2 million Christians. 2% of the population of the Roman Empire. And by 300 AD, before Constantine's decree... By 300 AD, there were 7 million Christians, 10% of the entire Roman Empire. Tertullian, who wrote about 200 AD, taunting some of his adversaries, wrote this. He wrote, we are but of yesterday. In other words, Christianity seems to be brand new. We are but of yesterday, and we have filled every place among you. Cities, islands, fortresses, marketplaces, tribes, companies, palaces, senates, forums. We have left nothing to you but your gods. By 200 AD, Stark found that by the year 100, 64% of all the port cities in the Roman Empire had a church. Okay? By the year 100 AD, 64% of port cities had a church. Again, think of what they're preaching. A crucified, uneducated Jewish fisherman is the savior of the world. That's their message. By the year 180, 86% of port cities all over the Roman Empire had a church. By the year 180, 65% of all inland cities had a church. 
You know, Jesus only lasted three years in his ministry. Coach K lasted 42 years at Duke. <laughs> Jesus lasted three years. How did this happen? You talk about a miracle. Against all odds, God used 11 Jewish fishermen. He used the Apostle Paul. He used a message that the world deemed to be uneducated and foolish to change everything. I wish John Follis would have heard about this. I don't think he's ever heard about the true Savior of Israel. And I want to encourage you, and I'm preaching to myself, don't be afraid of your doubts. The church, I can tell you this church is a safe place for your doubts. Rather than rebuking and condemning John the Baptist, Jesus loved him and accommodated him and he loves you and cares for you and will meet you in your need if you doubt. We would love to encourage you, help you understand how we or why we believe that this is truth. Life-changing, world-changing truth. I want to encourage you to take all of your concerns, all of your doubts, all of your questions, and do what John the Baptist did. Take them to Jesus. Pray for understanding. Pray for enlightenment. Pray for comfort, the Lord Jesus will answer that prayer and he will meet you in your time of need. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are amazed. We don't have time to consider all of the reasons that we have to place our faith and trust and hope in you, Lord Jesus. We only looked at, at two reasons today. There are so many reasons, historical reasons, grounded in truth, that call out and cry out that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, the Messiah, and the hope of Israel. Help us to trust him and love him and serve him all the days of our life. We pray in his matchless name. Amen.